It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living that God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. Our theme throughout this week will be spiritual warfare. There are many different pictures of God's people in the New Testament. In Ephesians, for instance, God's people are presented under the following pictures. A legislative assembly, a family, a temple, and as the bride of Christ. However, the final picture of God's people in Ephesians is that of an army. An army committed to fight a war that is global in its proportions. One that affects and includes every portion of this globe on which we live. In fact, even the word global doesn't do justice to the scope of this conflict. It embraces not only this globe, the earth, but it extends beyond earth into the very heavens. In fact, the adjective which correctly describes this conflict is not global, but universal. It includes the entire created universe. The scriptures which most clearly introduce this conflict and describe its nature are found in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read first in the New International Version, then I'm going to compare some other versions. Ephesians 6 beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Let me pause there and point out that Paul takes it for granted that as Christians we are involved in a war, that we need the appropriate armor for this war, and that our adversary is the devil himself. Then he goes on in verse 12 to explain more fully the nature of this war. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now I'm going to read also the New American Standard Version of verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then I'm going to read also the Living Bible, which is, uh, as it states itself, not exactly a literal translation, but a paraphrase. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, those mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. Whichever version you wish to follow, the fact is clear that as Christians we're engaged in a titanic conflict, something that actually staggers the mind to consider, and yet the statements are so clear. I've meditated so often and so long on that verse Ephesians 6.12 in the original Greek that I've come up with my own sort of paraphrase. 
You might call this the Prince version. And I'm going to give this to you now. For our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, but I like the Living Bible there where it says not against persons with bodies, but against rulers with various areas and descending orders of authority, against the world dominators of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Let me explain why I choose some of those words. I say rulers with various areas and descending orders of authority because the picture is of a very, very highly structured and well-organized kingdom with descending orders of authority and different rulers and sub-rulers responsible for different areas of their territory. And then I use the word dominators, the world dominators of this present darkness, because I believe dominate so vividly describes the way Satan treats the human race. And then note that all the translations except the Living Bible that we've followed emphasize that the headquarters of this highly organized kingdom is in the heavenlies. This is very clear. Let me bring out some points that emerge from this verse that we've been discussing. First of all, the conflict involves all Christians. It's not some special group of persons like missionaries or pastors or evangelists, but it's all of us. It's absolutely general in its application to all Christians. Many Christians haven't seen it that way. I didn't quote the King James Version of verse 12, but it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I once heard someone comment on this, that most Christians punctuate that verse wrong. They read it this way, We wrestle not, period. In other words, after that we sit in the church pew and sing hymns. But Paul says we're in a wrestling match, but it's not against flesh and blood. Then consider the import of the word wrestling match. Wrestling is the most intense of all forms of conflict between two persons. Every part of the body, every kind of skill, every kind of trick has to be used for success. It's total conflict. Then I've already pointed out, but let me say it again, Satan has a highly organized kingdom. And in that kingdom there are various areas and levels of authority. And then, I've said it already, but I pointed out once more, the headquarters of this kingdom are in the heavenly regions. That's staggering, but it's clear. The fact that Satan heads a highly organized kingdom astonishes some people. Yet there are many clear indications of this in the scriptures. I want to read you some words of Jesus about this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. This is an incident in the ministry of Jesus. He had brought healing to a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. He brought healing by driving out the demon, the evil spirit. This is how it goes on. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebub means literally Lord of Flies. It's the title of Satan, particularly 
as the ruler over demons, because the demons are compared to flies or to the whole insect domain. Now let's read the comment of Jesus. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? There are certain clear implications of that. First of all, Satan has a kingdom. Secondly, it's not divided, it's highly organized. And thirdly, it stands. It has not yet been overthrown. Then Jesus goes on, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see that Jesus there mentions another kingdom, the kingdom of God. First he speaks of Satan's kingdom, then he speaks of the kingdom of God. And he describes one particular point where the conflict between these two kingdoms is brought right out into the open. He says, when I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come. I think the implication is that this particular ministry of driving out demons brings out the forces of Satan's kingdom into the open and also demonstrates the superiority of the kingdom of God because the demons are driven out under the authority of of that kingdom. So there are two kingdoms in opposition, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. Let's also look in Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice again, there are two domains or kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light, in which our inheritance lies. But there's also the dominion of darkness. The word translated dominion there in Greek is exousia, which means authority. In other words, whether we like it or not, Satan has authority. He is the ruler of a kingdom which the Bible recognizes. So these two kingdoms are engaged in mortal warfare. And the war is coming to its climax in our days as this age comes to a close. In my introductory talk yesterday, I explained that as disciples of Jesus, we necessarily find ourselves involved in an all-out spiritual war that affects not only the entire globe on which we live, but indeed the entire created universe. Furthermore, this spiritual war is growing ever more intense as the present age draws to its close. The scripture which most clearly depicts the nature of this war is found in Ephesians 6:12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul makes it very clear there that as Christians we're involved in a life and death struggle with a highly organized kingdom peopled by evil, rebellious spirit beings and that the headquarters of this kingdom is in the heavenly realms. 
This raises a particular problem in the minds of many Christians, the phrase, the heavenly realm. The problem could be expressed in this way, I thought Satan was cast out of heaven long ago. How then can he still occupy any kind of place in the heavenly realms? Today I'm going to address myself to this problem. Let me begin by pointing out some passages that describe events long after the initial rebellion of Satan against God and his initial casting down as a result of that rebellion. And these passages indicate that at the time they were true, Satan still had access to the presence of God in heaven. We'd start in the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which says this, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Almost exactly the same incident is recorded again in Job chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So at that time, which was in the days of Job, we see that Satan still had direct access to the presence of the Lord. When God's angels came to present themselves and report to the Lord, Satan was there among them. It seems to me that the passage somewhat indicates that the other angels didn't identify Satan for who he was. And I can understand this because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that Satan is transformed as an angel of light. The passage creates in my mind the impression that the only one that identified Satan was the Lord. So he could appear in the presence of God apparently mingling with the other angels and not be detected. The Lord said, where have you come from, Satan? In other words, what are you doing here? But the Lord didn't immediately banish Satan from his presence. He actually had some kind of a, a conversation with him. So we see in the time of Job, Satan was still having access to the presence of God in heaven. And then let's go on to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been held down. The accuser of our brothers, we know, is Satan. And notice that at this time, he's still been accusing God's people before God day and night. Then we go on to read, They overcame him, that Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Then there's this commentary, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. That passage indicates that at whatever point that applies, and I believe myself it's still in the future, Satan still has access to the presence of God, and he uses his access to accuse God's people in the presence of God. Clearly, all the above passages that I've quoted refer to periods long after the original rebellion of Satan. So what is the answer? My answer is this. There is more than one heaven. 
I believe this is clearly indicated all through Scripture. For instance, in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word for heavens is shamaim. Im is the plural ending. The first time heaven is introduced, it's introduced in the plural. And then in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, we have this utterance of Solomon in his prayer to the Lord at the dedication of the temple. He says this, But who is able to build a temple for him? That's the Lord. Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Where the translation says the highest heavens, the Hebrew says literally the heaven of heavens. Clearly, either translation indicates there's more than one heaven. The word heaven of, the phrase heaven of heaven to me suggests a heaven that is above heaven as high as heaven is above earth. At any rate, more than one heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 2 through 4, Paul is even more specific. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. Paul says there he knew a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Before I became a preacher, I was a logician, and sometimes I can't get away from logic. Logic convinces me that if there is a third heaven, there must be a first and a second. So there are at least three heavens. And apparently the third heaven is where paradise, the place of rest of the departed righteous, is now located. It's also where God himself speaks. And then again in Ephesians 4.10, speaking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Notice that phrase, all the heavens. The word all can only be correctly used of at least three. I remember when I was teaching English to African students in Kenya, one day a student said to me, all my parents have come to see me. I said, you can't say all my parents because no one has more than two parents. And if you only have two, you can't say all. Well, that applies to the phrase all heavens. There must be at least three. I think that's clearly indicated by the whole tenor of Scripture. So I believe that leads us to the answer to the problem how Satan's kingdom is still in the heavenly realms. I've suggested to you that the Bible indicates that there are at least three heavens. In uh, colloquial speech, we sometimes use the phrase the seventh heaven, describing a condition of great happiness. I suggest that it isn't scriptural. Actually, the phrase is taken from the Quran, the sacred book of Islam, and is probably not appropriate for Christians. So, if you are feeling particularly happy, let me suggest that you say you're on cloud nine, because there are plenty of clouds in heaven, and that's more in line with Scripture. Jesus is coming in the clouds. Well, let's look at this revelation then that there are three heavens. I want to offer you my opinion. I do not offer this as established doctrine, but as what I believe to be a reasonable opinion, which seems to fit all the known facts of Scripture and of experience. There are three heavens. The first heaven is the visible heaven. The sun, the moon, the stars, that which we see with our eyes, the natural heaven. The third heaven we know from Second Corinthians 12 
is God's dwelling place. It's where paradise is. The place of rest of the departed righteous. It's the place where this man who was caught up heard God speaking words that could not be uttered. So we're left with the second heaven. Clearly this must be between the first and the third. So I understand there is an intermediate heaven between the heaven of God's dwelling and the visible heaven that we see here on earth. And I believe that in this intermediate heaven is where Satan's headquarters are located. I believe this explains the facts of our experience. It explains the fact that when we pray, we often find ourselves in an intense wrestling match. Sometimes I think we all not realize it's hard to break through to God. Sometimes we pray a prayer that's in the will of God. We believe God hears, and yet the answer tarries. Now, there can be more than one explanation of that, but I believe one major reason for experiences of this kind in the life of sincere, committed believers is that we're involved in a warfare and that the headquarters of Satan's kingdom is located between the visible heaven and the heaven of God's dwelling. In my previous two talks this week, I've explained that as disciples of Jesus, we find ourselves involved in an all-out spiritual war that affects not only the entire globe on which we live, but indeed the entire created universe. As representatives of God's kingdom, we are confronted by an opposing kingdom, Satan's kingdom, a highly organized kingdom of evil spirit beings persons without bodies, one translation calls them, and the headquarters of this kingdom are located in the heavenly realms. Yesterday I devoted my talk to explaining the fact that Satan's headquarters are in the heavenly realms. I pointed out that the Bible reveals that there are at least three heavens. The visible heaven which we see, another heaven called the third heaven, which is God's dwelling place, also called the heaven of heavens, and somewhere in between these two, another intermediate heaven. I suggested to you that it is this intermediate heaven where Satan's kingdom is located, and from which he directs his war against God's kingdom, and in particular against us as God's people here on earth. Today I'm going to turn to the book of Daniel for a specific example of spiritual warfare that casts further light on the location of Satan's kingdom. In fact, I'm going to be describing a battle of angels. We'll turn to Daniel chapter 10. In this chapter, Daniel describes how he set himself to pray and seek God for a revelation concerning the future of his people Israel. And for three weeks he devoted himself with special intensity to prayer and waiting on God. At the end of the three weeks, an angel from heaven came to Daniel with the answer to his prayer. The angel was so glorious and powerful that all the people with Daniel were scattered. And he was the only one who remained to receive the revelation. Now I'm going to read Daniel's own words describing this visitation 
In Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 through 6. In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all, until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. As I've already mentioned, Daniel's companions couldn't stand this glorious apparition and just disappeared. Then the angel began to speak to Daniel, and I'm not concerned with all he said, but only with one part of what he said, in verses 12 and 13. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. It's important to see that the first day that Daniel started praying, his prayer was heard and the angel was dispatched with the answer. But the angel didn't arrive on earth with Daniel till three weeks or twenty-one days later. What kept the angel three weeks on the journey? The answer is that he was opposed by Satan's angels. Somewhere in the journey from the heaven of God to earth, he had to go through the kingdom of Satan, the territory of Satan, Satan's kingdom in the heavenlies. And there he was opposed by evil angels who tried to prevent him getting through with the message to Daniel. This is how he describes it. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. That's why the angel took twenty-one days, because he had resistance, opposition in the heavenlies. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, or chief angels, or archangels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Notice, all this took place in the heavenly realms, and we are able to identify certain angelic beings. The leader of Satan, Satan's angels is called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the chief ruler over Persia. Related to him and apparently under him were various kings or lesser angels. And then on God's side, the angel that came to help the original angel sent with a message to Daniel was the archangel Michael. Now in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, we read this about Michael. Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. The word great prince we can interpret as archangel. This particular archangel Michael stands guard over the sons of Daniel's people. In other words, the children of Israel. So Michael in some special way is charged by God with watching over the interests and protecting Israel. And because this whole revelation centered around the future of Israel, it was very much in the interests of Israel that the messenger should get through. So when the first angel was held up, 
then the archangel Michael came to help him. And they battled there with the satanic angels for 21 days. The satanic angels, as I've already said, were represented by one who was known as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the supreme ruler, and under him various kings or subordinate rulers who, I would imagine, had various areas of authority. For instance, there might be one king over each major city of the Persian Empire, one over each major ethnic group, perhaps one also over each of the various religious and pagan cults of the Persian Empire. But we get this picture of a highly organized, structured kingdom with various areas and descending levels of authority, and its headquarters are in the heavenly, and it's a kingdom of rebellious, fallen angels, spirit beings, persons without bodies. At the end of Daniel chapter 10, the angel again speaks about this conflict. He said to Daniel, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. In other words, the battle against this evil satanic angel that dominated the empire of Persia was not yet complete. There would be further war in the heavens. So the angel continues, I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. In other words, once victory has been gained over the evil angel that rules the empire of Persia, the next empire that will arise will be the empire of Greece, and that also will have its own specific evil angel that is the ruler or prince of Greece. And then right at the end, the angel that's speaking to Daniel says this, Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except Michael, your prince. So we see again that the archangel Michael is specifically associated with protecting and watching over the interests of God's people Israel. And we see that it took the united strength of the first angel and of Michael to overcome these satanic uh, ruling angels in Satan's kingdom that were opposing the outworking of God's purposes for Israel. You might say, why particularly Persia and Greece? Let me remind you that there were four major Gentile empires that successively dominated uh, Israel, their land, and the city of Jerusalem from about the 5th century B.C. and onwards. They were Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. So Persia and Greece were significant because at that time they were the two dominant Gentile empires. We see from this that the battle centers around God's people and God's purposes. That, I believe, is still true today. Wherever God's people are and wherever God's purposes are being worked out, that's where the spiritual battle will be most intense. And let me offer you my personal opinion again that at this time, in the days in which we now live, the center of the conflict is once again over Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Finally, let me point out to you the effect of Daniel's prayers. To me, this is somewhat staggering. When Daniel started to pray on earth, in a sense, it set all heaven in motion, both the angels of God and the angels of Satan. That gives us a terrific insight into what prayer can do. Also, I'm impressed by the fact that apparently God's angels needed the help of Daniel's prayers to get them through and accomplish their mission. Again, 
that gives us a tremendous insight into the effectiveness of prayer. I'll begin by reviewing briefly the material that we've covered in my two previous talks. First of all, as representatives of God's kingdom here on earth, we are committed to an all-out spiritual war with an opposing kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. Secondly, Satan's kingdom is highly organized. Its highest level is made up of evil spirit beings, persons without bodies, and its headquarters are located in the heavenly realms. Yesterday we looked at a historical example of how all this works in practice in Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel set out to pray concerning the future of God's people Israel, his prayers set all heaven in motion. God dispatched an angel to bring Daniel the answer to his prayer. But in his passage from God's presence to Daniel on earth, this angel was opposed by satanic angels somewhere in the heavenly realms. Only after twenty-one days of this spiritual conflict did this angel eventually break through to Daniel with his message. The main satanic angel that opposed God's angel was called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Without going into all the details that this passage reveals, we can say briefly that there is a highly organized kingdom of evil spirit beings in the heavenly realms that systematically opposes God's purposes and God's people on earth. Viewed in this light, prayer is much more than presenting a list of petitions to God. It is becoming involved in a tremendous spiritual conflict that spans earth and heaven and embroils both men and angels. Today we're going to look at two related aspects of this spiritual warfare, the weapons which we must use and the battleground on which the war is fought. Both are revealed in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. I'll read the New American Standard Version first. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Notice Paul says, we're living in the flesh, and we're engaged in a war, but our war is not in the fleshly realm. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. In other words, the weapons that we use must correspond to the nature of the war. If the nature of the war were fleshly or physical, then we could use fleshly or physical weapons. Tanks, bombs, bullets, whatever. But because the war is spiritual, and in a spiritual realm, therefore the weapons also must be spiritual. So the version goes on to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice our weapons are appropriate to the war, and we are dealing with fortresses. The King James Version reads like this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly or physical, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, where the New American Standard says fortresses, the King James says strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, 
and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. First, let me sum up about the weapons. The weapons are suited to the area of warfare. The warfare is in the spiritual realm, therefore the weapons are spiritual. Now, I'm not going to go into further detail about the weapons now, because that will be my main theme in the two following weeks that I'll be talking to you on this theme of spiritual warfare. So just note that the weapons are spiritual and appropriate to the realm of the warfare, and we'll put that in our pending file until we can do it, deal with it in greater detail in the following two weeks. Now, let's look at the battleground, and this is tremendously important, that we understand where the battle is taking place. Speaking of the battleground and our objectives, Paul uses various words, and I'm choosing from various different translations now. But these are the words. Imaginations, reasonings, speculations, arguments, knowledge, and thought. One thing is obvious. Every one of those words refers to the same particular realm, the realm of the mind. And this is something we absolutely have to understand. The battleground is in the realm of the mind. Satan is waging an all-out war to captivate the minds of the human race. He's building strongholds and fortresses in their minds. And it's our responsibility as God's representatives to use our spiritual weapons to break down these strongholds and fortresses, to liberate the minds of men and women, and then to bring them in turn into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What a staggering assignment that is. Let's ask ourselves briefly, what kind of strongholds does the Bible indicate? I would suggest to you two fairly common English words that pretty well describe the type of stronghold in people's minds. The words are prejudices and preconceptions. I believe that's exactly what Satan builds in people's minds. You've heard perhaps the definition of prejudice. It's being down on what you're not up on. In other words, if you don't know anything about it, it's sure to be wrong. If you weren't the first to think of it, then it's dangerous. If ever that was true of any group of people, it's true of religious people. Almost anything that religious people haven't heard about before, they view with intense fear and suspicion. There's another example of prejudice which is contained in the famous statement Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. That's prejudice, you see. When a person's mind is already made up in advance no amount of facts or truth or evidence or reason can change them. Only spiritual weapons can break down those strongholds. You see, people are driven and dominated by prejudices and preconceptions, often to their own destruction. I think of a, an example that really impressed me, maybe because I'm English by background. But in the American Revolutionary War, when the English soldiers were fighting the, the American rebels, their idea of war, the English idea of war, was to put on full uniform and march in rank, in very highly colored uniforms, with the drums rolling, into battle. And uh, the American sharpshooters just hid in the trees and in the swamps and simply shot these people down without ever being seen. 
By our standards today, that would be considered military suicide. But in that time, people couldn't conceive of fighting in any other way. What was that? It was a stronghold of prejudice and preconception that caused the unnecessary death of thousands of English soldiers. That's just an example of how a mental prejudice can drive people to their own destruction. Let's think of some examples of prejudices that grip people's minds. I would say religious cults, political ideologies, and racial prejudices. And they are found frequently amongst professing Christians. Some little while back I was in South Africa preaching. I was asked to preach on this theme of principalities and wars, spiritual warfare. And as I was meditating on it, it seemed to me that the Lord gave me the identity of the strong man over South Africa. A rather unusual word, bigotry. I looked up the word bigot in a dictionary, and this was the definition. One who holds, irrespective of reason, and attaches disproportionate weight to some creed or view. That's a bigot. That's a stronghold. That's what Satan builds in people's minds. After I'd given this talk, a minister who was born in South Africa and knew the country well said to me, you couldn't have described the problems of South Africa any better. South Africa is riddled with bigotry, religious, racial, denominational. The root problem of that nation is bigotry. And yet, individually, they're a most delightful group of people. But their minds have been captivated and held by this stronghold of bigotry. Now, I'm not suggesting that the South Africans are different from other people. They just have their own particular kind of stronghold. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 as we close this message. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a stronghold, something that blinds men's minds so that the light of the gospel cannot shine in. And you know that usually when a person is in that condition, it's worse than useless to argue with them. The more you argue, the more they restate their error, and the more firmly they are stuck in that error. The only way to deliver such people is to use our spiritual weapons and break down the strongholds in their minds. All through this week, I've pictured for you two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of God, of which we are the representatives here on earth, and the kingdom of Satan, a highly organized kingdom of evil spirit beings, persons without bodies, whose headquarters are in the heavenly realms. Yesterday, I established two main points. First, God has provided us with spiritual weapons that are appropriate to the nature of the warfare, which itself is spiritual. Second, the battlefield on which the war is being fought is the mind of humanity. Satan has built strongholds of prejudice in the minds of humanity to prevent them from receiving the truth of the gospel. It is our responsibility with the spiritual weapons God has given us to break down these mental strongholds and thus bring men's minds under the control of Christ instead of Satan. Today I'm going to explain the most important single fact that we need to know 
in order to be assured of victory in our spiritual warfare. I'm going to turn first to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. In these verses, Paul describes what God has done for us as believers through the death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. This is what he says. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The great essential fact which we have to lay hold of is this. And let me warn you that Satan is extremely determined that we shall not grasp this fact. He wants to keep us from understanding it because it's the key to his defeat. The fact is this. Christ has already defeated Satan and all his evil powers and authorities totally and forever. I'm going to say that again. If you remember nothing else, remember that. Christ has already defeated Satan and all his evil powers and authorities, totally and forever. He did that through his death on the cross, through his shed blood, and through his triumphant resurrection. To understand how this was accomplished, we have to recognize Satan's primary weapon against us, and that weapon is guilt. Let me read a passage from Revelation 12:10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been held down. Who is the accuser of the brothers? We know that's Satan. I've already pointed out in a previous talk this week that Satan does have access to the presence of God and one thing that he does, his chief occupation is accusing us who believe in Jesus. Now why does Satan accuse us? What is his objective? It can be stated in one simple phrase, to make us guilty. So long as Satan can keep us feeling guilty, we cannot defeat him. Guilt is the key to our defeat. Righteousness is the key to our victory. That's where the real basic issues lie. Now, let's see how God, through the cross, has dealt with this problem of guilt. God has dealt both with the past and with the future. He's made complete provision for both. How did God deal with the past? It's very simple. Colossians 2.13 He forgave us all our sins. Through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf as our representative, carrying our guilt and paying our penalty, God is now able to forgive us all our sinful acts, every sin we've ever committed without compromising his own justice because his justice has been satisfied by the death of Christ. The first thing we have to understand is that all our past sinful acts, no matter how many or how serious, have been forgiven when we put our faith in Jesus. Then God made provision for the future. Colossians 2.14 He cancelled the written code 
with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What is the written code? It's the law of Moses. Jesus on the cross did away with the law of Moses as the requirement for attaining righteousness with God. Now, as long as that was the requirement, every time we broke even one of the most minor requirements of the law of Moses, we were guilty before God. But when the law was taken out of the way as the requirement for achieving righteousness, then provision was made for us to live free from guilt because our faith is reckoned to us for righteousness. Let me show you two related passages. Romans chapter 10 verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's an important statement. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jew or Gentile, Catholic or Protestant, it makes no difference. Christ is not the end of the law as a part of God's word or as a part of the history of Israel or in many other aspects, but he's the end of the law as a means to achieve righteousness with God. We are not required to keep the law in order to be righteous. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the divine exchange. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness, that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Once we grasp the fact that we have been made righteous with the righteousness of Christ, then the devil cannot make us feel guilty any longer. His main weapon has been taken from him. Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers by his death on the cross. He took from them their main weapon against us. Now I want to show you the outworking of Christ's victory through us. We've already seen the statement of Christ's victory in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, that Satan's whole evil kingdom, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Notice what a triumph is. A triumph is not actually the winning of a victory. It's the celebration of a victory that has already been won. It's the demonstration of the victory that has been won. So Jesus, through his death on the cross, demonstrated to the whole universe his victory over the entire satanic kingdom. However, Jesus won that victory not for himself. He didn't need it. He won it for us. And it's God's purpose that that victory should be worked out and demonstrated through us. Here is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, one of my favorite verses. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. No wonder Paul says, thanks be to God. You couldn't help thanking God if you really grasped the message of that verse. God always causes us to share Christ's triumph over Satan's kingdom. There are two adverbial phrases, always and in every place. That means there's no time and no place when we cannot visibly share the triumph of Christ over Satan's kingdom. And then look again in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says through his death on the cross, he has wrested the authority out of Satan. 
and he's obtained it for himself, and God has vested in him all authority in heaven and earth, then he says, therefore, go and make disciples. What's the implication of the therefore? Jesus says, I've won the authority, you go and exercise it. You go and demonstrate my victory to the whole world by fulfilling my commission. Let me conclude by making three simple statements about the victory of Jesus. First of all, in the wilderness temptation, Jesus defeated Satan on his own behalf. He met Satan, resisted his temptation, defeated him. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan on our behalf, not for himself, but for us. He didn't need the victory for himself. He already had it. But he won the victory. He defeated our enemy. He disarmed our enemy. He stripped him. He made a show of him openly on our behalf. Thirdly, now it is our responsibility to demonstrate and administer the victory of Jesus. That's our responsibility. Let me close by reading again that beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be unto God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Remember that. Always and in every place, Christ has made victory possible for us. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, please visit our website at derekprince.org or call us at 1-800-448-3261. It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living, which God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. This week I'm going to continue with the theme that I dealt with all last week, the theme of spiritual warfare. Last week I explained that as the representatives of God's kingdom here on earth, we find ourselves involved in an all-out war with an opposing kingdom, Satan's kingdom, a highly organized kingdom of evil spirit beings, persons without bodies, whose headquarters are in the heavenly realms. The battleground on which this war is being fought out is the mind of humanity. Satan has built up strongholds of prejudice and unbelief in the minds of the human race to keep them from receiving the truth of the gospel. Our God-given task is to break down these mental strongholds, thus releasing men and women from Satan's deception, and then to bring them instead into submission and obedience to Christ. Our ability to achieve this God-given task depends mainly upon two factors. First, that we see clearly from Scripture that on the cross, Jesus totally defeated Satan on our behalf and that it is now our responsibility to demonstrate and administer the victory which Jesus has already won. Second, that we make proper use of the necessary spiritual weapons with which God has provided us. These spiritual weapons fall into two main categories, weapons of defense and weapons of attack. This week, I'm going to deal with the first category, the weapons of defense. We'll turn again to the passage in Ephesians chapter 6, which is really the basis for all this teaching. I'm going to read from Ephesians 6.10 through Ephesians 6.17. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Early on in that passage that I've just read, Paul says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God. That's what we're dealing with now, taking up the full armor of God. You may have heard me comment before that whenever you find a therefore in the Bible, you want to find out what it's there for. The therefore that I've just read, therefore take up the full armor of God, is there because of the preceding verse, where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. It's because we're involved in this life and death struggle with the evil spirit forces of Satan's kingdom that we owe it to ourselves and God's word requires of us that we put on the full armor of God. It's significant that in the verse preceding that verse and in the verse following it, in each verse, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Surely, we've been clearly warned by Scripture that we're going to need to protect ourselves with the full armor of God. In the second passage where Paul says this, he gives a further reason that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Notice that phrase, the evil day. I don't believe that means the great tribulation or some prophetic disaster that's going to come on the world, although I do believe there may be such disasters. But I believe in that context, the evil day refers to something that every Christian is going to have to go through, a time when he's going to have to confront the forces of evil, where his faith is going to be challenged, where every kind of opposition and problem will be let loose against him. Paul doesn't question that we'll have to face the evil day. It's not an option, it's a certainty. I always think of the parable that Jesus spoke of the two men who built two houses, the foolish man who built on sand, the wise man who built on rock. The foolish man's house collapsed, the wise man's house stood. The difference between those two houses was not the tests to which they were subjected. Each house was subjected to the same test, the wind, the rain, the storm, and the flood. The difference was the foundation on which they were built. Nothing in the scripture 
indicates that we as Christians will escape these tests. We will not escape the evil day. We have to be prepared to go through it. And in the light of that, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. He takes his picture from a Roman legionary of his day and he lists six pieces of equipment that a Roman legionary would normally wear. Let me list them for you. First, the girdle of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. Third, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. Fourth, the shield of faith. Fifth, the helmet of salvation. Sixth, the sword of the Spirit. You will understand, as you meditate on that, that if you put on all these six pieces of equipment, you will be fully protected from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet. With one exception, there's no protection for the back. I'll speak about that later in this series of talks. For the rest of this talk, I'm going to deal with the first item of equipment, the girdle of truth. First of all, we need to understand why a Roman legionary would need a girdle as part of his equipment. We have to remember that in those days, the clothing of men as well as of women was usually some kind of loose garment that came at least to the knees, some kind of a tunic in the case of the Roman legionary. Now, when a Roman legionary had to do something active, had to fight, had to use his weapons, if he did not take care of that loose garment, its flaps and its folds would hinder his movements and prevent him using the rest of his equipment effectively. So the first thing he had to do was to take his girdle and tie it tightly around his waist in such a way that the tunic no longer flapped freely and could not hinder his further movements. This was essential. It was the basis for everything else. And that's why Paul mentions the girdle of truth before he speaks about anything else. Quite often in the Bible it speaks about a man girding up his loins. That's what it refers to. Now Paul says the girdle for us is truth. I don't believe that means abstract theological truth. I believe it means truth in daily living. I believe it means honesty, sincerity, openness, frankness. You see, as religious people, we're often encumbered about with a lot of sham and hypocrisy. A lot of things we say and do that we don't really mean, but we say them because they sound good, they're religious. We're full of religious cliches and insincerities, things we do not to please God, or because we really want to do them, but to please other people. Almost any religious group that you are associated with, you will find has got its own particular cliches. Like, uh, Jesus will help you, brother. Sometimes that's nothing but a cop-out, because it's not Jesus who needs to help your brother, it's you who need to help your brother. Religious talk like that is just a, it's like a loose hanging garment. It gets in our way. It prevents us from doing the kind of thing that God asks us to do. It prevents us from being active, energetic, effective Christians. It prevents us from using the other items of equipment. And so we have to, first of all, put on the girdle of truth. We have to put away sham, hypocrisy, religious cliches, saying and doing things we don't mean. Often that's quite painful. You have to begin to show other people the kind of person you really are. 
You may have been hiding away. You may have been putting on a religious front all this time, and now you're confronted with the need for real truth and openness and frankness. That's putting on the girdle. That's tying it around so that these religious insincerities and shams no longer hang around you and get in the way of the things that God is asking you to do. So that's the first requirement, the girdle of truth. Yesterday we looked together at the list of defensive armor which Paul gives in Ephesians 6 verses 13 through 17. We saw that the six items which Paul lists are as follows. First, the girdle of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. Third, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. Fourth, the shield of faith. Fifth, the helmet of salvation. Sixth, the sword of the Spirit. Yesterday I dealt with the first item, the girdle of truth. I explained how a Roman legionary used his girdle to fasten his tunic tightly to his body so that its loose folds would not hinder the free, effective use of his arms and legs and how his very life might depend on that. In the same way, we need to fasten up all the loose, flapping folds of religious language and clichés and to be absolutely honest in all that we say and do. Otherwise, we will not be in a position to make effective use of the remaining items of armor. That is why Paul lists the girdle first, the girdle of truth. Today, I'm going to speak about the second item, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, of course, protects, above all else, one absolutely vital organ of the human body, and we all know what that is, the heart. The Bible indicates that the heart is of supreme importance in our lives. I've always been blessed by the statement of Solomon in Proverbs 4:23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. I was a teacher in East Africa in Kenya for five years, and I became acquainted with a number of the tribes there and learnt a little of some of their languages. The one of the tribes was called the Marigoli tribe. And one day on the wall of a student's um, dormitory, I saw this verse quoted in the Marigoli language, which is called Luragoli. And uh, I translated it to myself literally, and I've always remembered the translation. It said this, Guard your heart with all your strength, for all the things there are in life come out of it. That's never left me. Guard your heart with all your strength, for all the things there are in life come out of it. What you have in your heart ultimately must determine the course of your life, for good or for evil. That's why it's essential that we protect our heart from all kinds of evil. And Paul speaks about the breastplate of righteousness as the protection of the heart. We need to ask what is meant by righteousness in this context. Fortunately, Paul returns to this theme of armor in another epistle, 1 Thessalonians. 
And in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, he says this, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. So there Paul describes the breastplate from another point of view. He calls it the breastplate of faith and love. Put these two passages together. The breastplate of righteousness is a breastplate of faith and love. And this tells us the kind of righteousness that Paul has in mind. It's not the righteousness of works. It's not the righteousness of a religious law, but it's the righteousness that comes only by faith. Paul speaks about this kind of righteousness again in Philippians 3, 9. He says that I may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul there puts the two kinds of righteousness side by side. First of all, he speaks about a righteousness of his own derived from the law, and he says this is not sufficient. Then he speaks as an alternative of the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the kind of righteousness which he has in mind when he speaks about the breastplate of righteousness that protects the heart. You see, as long as we're wearing a breastplate which is simply our own righteousness, believe me, Satan can find many, many weak points in that righteousness, and he can penetrate it many times with his attacks and damage our heart. We have to put on a breastplate which is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. In this context, it's helpful to look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. We have to be convinced out of Scripture and accept by faith that we have become the righteousness of God. That's the only kind of breastplate that can adequately protect our heart and our life. Now, this kind of righteousness, as Paul emphasizes, comes only through faith. Therefore, it's a breastplate of faith and love. There is no other way to achieve this kind of righteousness. I'm always moved by the prayer of Jesus for Peter on the night before his passion when Jesus warned Peter that he was going to betray him the same night. And in the context of that warning, Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you. I want you to see the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus did not pray that Peter would not betray him because in the circumstances under the pressures that would develop, with the known weaknesses in Peter's character, it was inevitable that Peter would betray Jesus. But Jesus prayed a different kind of prayer, the only prayer that could really help Peter. This is what Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Notice that that your faith may not fail, even though he was going to deny the Lord, even though he was going to show himself very weak and in a sense cowardly, everything could still be retrieved, provided his faith did not fail. You see, it's a, a breastplate of faith and love. Faith is essential for this breastplate. 
the kind of faith that we're talking about works through love and only through love. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Bear that in mind, faith working through love. The breastplate of faith and love. As I understand it there in Galatians, what Paul is really saying is no kind of outward ceremony or ritual in itself is sufficient. The one essential thing without which we cannot succeed in the Christian life is faith and the kind of faith that works through love. It's not a passive faith. It's not a theoretical faith. It's an active faith. It's a faith that works but through love. I'm impressed by the irresistible power of love the more I meditate upon it. I love a passage in the Song of Solomon which speaks about love. It says this, the Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal over your arm, for love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. Think of that statement, love is as strong as death. Death is the one irresistible thing that we all encounter. There's not one of us that can resist death. When death comes, it's irresistible. There's no way to avoid it. And scripture says, love is as strong as death. Did you ever think about that? Love is irresistible. It always conquers. There's no way it can be defeated. Love protects our hearts from all negative forces, from resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness, discouragement, despair, all those evil things which will corrupt our heart and spoil our lives. Because remember, all that there is in life comes out of the heart. Listen to how Paul describes this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-8. through 8. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's the breastplate that we need, one that never fails a breastplate in which there are no weak points that Satan can penetrate. And see how appropriate what Paul says there is to the picture of the breastplate. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. When you have on that breastplate of faith that works by love, it will always protect you. It will keep your heart from every attack, an attempt of Satan to penetrate that vital area of your life. In Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 17, Paul lists six items. First, the girdle of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. Third, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. Fourth, the shield of faith. Fifth, the helmet of salvation and sixth, the sword of the Spirit. So far we've dealt with the girdle and the breastplate. 
Today we're going to study the next two items, the shoes and the shield. Perhaps I should begin by giving you some kind of description of the kind of shoes that Roman legionaries usually wore. They were strong, heavy sandals with thongs to keep the feet in place and they usually also laced at least halfway up the calf with leather thongs. They were a very important part of the legionary's equipment because they enabled him to march long distances at speed. This gave him mobility. It made him available to his commander at the time and the place where he was needed in the battle. So I want you to think of shoes as providing mobility or availability to your commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. They make you mobile. They make you available. This became very real to me from my own personal experience. As I've mentioned before in these talks for two years during World War II, I served with a hospital unit with the British Army in the deserts of North Africa. And there were times in that service while we were working with an armored division that we were very close to the enemy lines, sometimes at night. And in the desert it's not easy to know exactly where the enemy lines are because the whole war is very mobile. In such situations our commanding officer always gave orders that we were not to take our boots off at night. We were to sleep with our boots on. Of course, the reason is obvious. If there's a sudden emergency in the middle of the night, you're usually not at your best anyhow when you wake out of sound sleep. And if you don't have your boots on and it's dark and there's confusion all around you, you can spend several valuable minutes groping for your boots, trying to put them on, trying to lace them up. Whereas if you have your boots on, you're instantly available. You see, the key is availability or mobility. Now, this is true the spiritual counterpart that Paul speaks about in our equipment as Christians. The shoes or the sandals are called the preparation of the gospel. In other words, it means being ready with something. I believe that as Christians we are obligated to have an intelligent understanding of what the gospel is. Many Christians claim to be saved and born again, but they can't give any intelligent account of how they got saved or how someone else can get saved. I believe preparation includes study of the Scripture, memorization of Scripture, ability to communicate intelligently the Gospel message. That's preparation. Then again, notice that Paul calls it the Gospel of Peace. It's a Gospel that produces peace of heart and mind in those who believe it and obey it. Now, there's one thing very certain about peace. We can only transmit peace to others if we have peace ourselves first. We can't transmit something that we don't experience. We can talk about it. We can theorize, but we can't transmit it. There's a very significant passage in Matthew 10, verses 12 and 13, where Jesus is giving instructions to the first disciples when he sent them out for the first time to preach the gospel for themselves. This is part of the instruction that he gave them. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. Notice that significant phrase. When you go into a home, if it's deserving, let your peace rest on it. Impart your peace to it. 
Let me ask you frankly, if you go into a home, do you have peace to impart? You can't impart something that you're not enjoying yourself. Let me give you a little example of how this might work. You're a lady out in the supermarket doing your grocery shopping. And perhaps just in front of you or just behind you in the line for the checkout, there's a lady who's obviously on the verge of a nervous breakdown. She's nervous. She can't handle herself. She's all jittery. And God directs you to help. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, come to church on Sunday morning? That won't meet her need. If you had to say that, you wouldn't have your shoes on. Having your shoes on means you're ready to do something right then and there when God directs you. What are you going to have to do? First of all, you've got to have peace. You've got to let her feel that you've got something that she hasn't got and desperately needs. People can feel peace in other people. I've seen that many times. Secondly, when she reaches out for that peace, you've got to be able to tell her in simple, non-religious language just how she can find peace. You've got to be able to communicate the gospel to her. So that's the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. The next item that we're going to speak about is the shield of faith. In the Greek of the New Testament, there are two different words for shield, two different kinds of shield. One is a small circular shield, shaped more or less like a large round wicker basket, a flat basket. The other one is taken from the word for a door, because it's shaped somewhat like a door. It's a long rectangular shield. That's the kind of shield that Paul speaks of when he says the shield of faith. A properly trained Roman legionary could so use that shield of faith that when he held it in front of him, no part of his body could be reached by the missiles of the enemy. It protected him completely. That's the door-shaped shield that protects the whole person. That's the kind of faith that Paul is speaking about when he refers to it as a shield. You see, when we go out against Satan, if we begin to cause him any trouble, you can be sure he will counterattack. First and foremost, he may counterattack us ourselves. So we need to have a shield that covers us, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our finances. He'll attack any area he can reach. And if he can't attack us, he'll attack those closest to us. If you're a married man and a minister, the first thing that Satan will attack is your wife. It's almost to be guaranteed that's one of the ways he'll get back at you. You have to have a shield big enough to protect everything for which God has made you responsible. Your own person, your family, and everything that God has committed to you. I learned this lesson in a very vivid way once. I'll try and relate it to you briefly. I was ministering to a woman who had a demon of suicide. At a certain point, she received a very definite, dramatic deliverance. She knew she was free. So I praised God. Next day, she came back to see me, and she related this remarkable incident. She said that just about the time she received her deliverance, her husband was driving along the highway in his open pickup truck and their German shepherd dog was standing, as the dog always loved to do, in the back of the truck. For no reason, while the truck was traveling at high speed, the shepherd dog suddenly jumped out 
and was instantly killed. The moment she told me that, I understood that something had happened. I understood that that demon of suicide which had left the woman had gone into the dog. See, Satan attacked the nearest thing he could reach. And I learned a lesson that I trust I'll never have to learn again. Whenever I minister deliverance to people, I always claim the protection of faith and of the blood of Jesus over everything that's connected with them. And that kind of thing has never happened to me again. But there was how I learned the importance of the shield of faith, that great door-shaped shield that protects everything God has committed to us. You see, faith is mentioned twice in this list of the armor. The breastplate is faith and love, and the shield is the shield of faith. But I believe uh, faith has to be understood slightly differently. The breastplate is faith for our own personal righteousness, but the shield is faith for protection and provision for ourselves and all whom God has committed to us. It's the thing that covers everything. I learned this in a vivid way also at the beginning of this radio ministry. When I got launched into this radio ministry, it was remarkable how many things simultaneously went wrong in the office and in the production. Equipment that should have functioned perfectly suddenly ceased to function. Personnel became sick. Messages went astray kind of confusion broke loose in our usually well-ordered setup. And then I realized I had to stretch out the shield of faith. Satan was counter-attacking. He couldn't reach me personally, so he attacked something that I depended upon, those who supported my ministry. I held out the shield of faith. I rebuked that power of confusion, and peace and order were restored. So once again, I learned the lesson we have to hold out that shield of faith for full protection and provision. So far in my talks this week, I've dealt with four of these items of defensive armor. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of salvation, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith. Today I'm going to deal with the fifth item of equipment, the helmet of salvation. I'll be sharing some precious truths concerning this that I learned from my own conflicts. When I look back on these conflicts, I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 8:37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean to be more than conquerors? I believe it means this, that we not only win the battle, but we actually come out of it with more than we had when we went into it. That's to be more than conqueror, and I've proved this many times in my own experience. Dealing with the breastplate, we saw that the breastplate protects the heart. Now that we're looking at the helmet, what does the helmet protect? Obviously, the head. What does the head represent? The mind. So we're talking now about a helmet that protects our minds. In our talks last week, we saw that the battlefield on which this entire spiritual war is being fought out is the mind, the mind of humanity. Because the mind is the battlefield, it's obvious that we need to be particularly careful 
to protect our own minds. Of course, you've probably understood by now that I was a hospital attendant in World War II, so I know a certain amount about this from experience. In the natural, a person wounded in the head can no longer make effective use of the rest of his equipment. He may be a very brave and efficient soldier. He may have excellent equipment, but when he's wounded in the head, it becomes very difficult for him to make effective use of his ability and his equipment. Now, in the spiritual, this is true with many Christian workers, and I'm saying this from personal observation. I've been privileged to be associated in ministry at different times and in different places with many wonderful servants of God, both men and women, missionaries, pastors, and others. I think particularly of missionaries who are usually under extreme spiritual pressure. I can look back on some missionaries that I worked with in different places who were dedicated, qualified men and women of God with great ability and a real calling. But many times they allowed themselves to be wounded in the head. I mean this, that they allowed themselves to become prey to depression or to suspicion, to mistrust of other Christian workers. And this problem in their minds prevented them from being the kind of effective missionaries and servants of God that they could have been. Being wounded in their heads, they couldn't use the rest of their equipment. I learned a great deal about this from my own personal experience. For many years in the ministry, I had a tremendous personal struggle with depression. I know exactly what depression is like. When I talk, those who have experienced it always know it. With me it was like a kind of dark grey cloud, a kind of mist that settled down over me, over my head and my shoulders, shut me in, shut me off, made it difficult for me to communicate with others, gave me a sense of hopelessness, and although in many ways I am a gifted and qualified servant of the Lord, I got that impression others can but you can't. You'll never make it. You're going to have to give up. I struggled with this depression for a good many years. I did everything I could. I prayed, I fasted, I sought God, I read the Bible. Then one day God gave me a revelation that solved my problem. I was reading Isaiah 61, verse 3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. When I read that phrase, the spirit of heaviness, something leapt within me. I said, that's my problem. That's what I need to be delivered from. I read other passages of scripture on deliverance. I prayed a simple prayer of faith. And God supernaturally delivered me from that spirit of heaviness. But then I saw that I had to keep my mind protected. I saw that I needed some special protection for my mind. I was familiar with the passage in Ephesians 6. I said to myself, that must be the helmet of salvation. Then I said, does that mean I have the helmet because I'm saved? Is it automatic? And I saw that couldn't be so because Paul was writing to people who were Christians and he said, put on the helmet of salvation. I was directed to a parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. And when I read that phrase, the hope of salvation, I had an instantaneous revelation from the Holy Spirit. I saw that the protection of the mind is hope. The protection of the heart is faith. 
we often get these mixed up. Biblical faith is in the heart. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. Biblical faith is the breastplate that protects the heart. But the protection of the mind is hope. We need to see the connection between faith and hope. It's stated clearly in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the underlying basic reality on which hope is built. When we have valid faith, then we have valid hope. When we don't have valid faith, we may not have valid hope either. Our hope may be mere wishful thinking. But when we have a real foundation of faith, on that foundation we can build a valid hope, and that's the protection of our mind. I'd like to define hope very simply, according to Scripture. Hope is a quiet, steady expectation of good, based on the promises of God's Word. In a sense, it's continuing optimism. That's the protection of the mind. Hope, optimism, an optimistic attitude that always sees the best, will not give way to depression and doubt and self-pity. There's one sufficient basis for hope in the Word of God. It's Romans 8:28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If we really know that everything that happens in our lives is being worked together by God for our good, then there never is a reason for pessimism. Every situation is always a reason for optimism. Optimism is the helmet. While we keep it on, our minds are protected against all Satan's subtle attacks, against doubt, discouragement, self-pity, mistrust, and so on. When the Holy Spirit showed me that the helmet to protect our minds is hope, he preached, as it were, a kind of sermon to me, an instantaneous sermon. I suddenly brought together a number of passages of the New Testament, and all of them dealt with hope. Let me share just a few of them. Romans 8:24. We are saved by hope. What does that mean? No hope, no salvation. Hope is an essential part of our experience of salvation. Contrast the condition of the unsaved in Ephesians 2:12. Paul says this, Before you knew Christ, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. See those three things. Without Christ, without hope, without God. That's the condition of the lost. It should never be the condition of the Christian. If we have Christ, then we have hope, and we have God. Again, in Colossians 1.27, Paul says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? What's the real mystery, the secret of the gospel, the real purpose of God? Paul goes on to say, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See what that means? If Christ is in you, you have hope. If you don't have hope, it's just as if Christ isn't in you. I don't mean you're a lost soul, but I mean that you're not living in the experience of salvation. Hope in your mind, is an essential part of your salvation experience. In Hebrews 6:17 through 20, there are two beautiful pictures of hope. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. See the pictures there of hope? The first is an altar. Under the old covenant, the altar was the place of protection from the avenger of blood. When you fled to the altar, you were safe. The writer of Hebrews says, When all the pressures are against us, flee to the altar, catch hold of the horns of the altar, and let nothing pull you away. And the altar is hope. And then he says, Hope is like an anchor that reaches out of time into eternity, into the very presence of God. In this world, we're like a little vessel on the sea. Everything around us is temporary, impermanent, unreliable, changeable. There's nothing to give us security and stability. If we're to have security and stability, we need an anchor, an anchor that reaches out of time into eternity and fastens in the rock of ages. That anchor is hope. When we have hope, we're anchored. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says finally in Hebrews 10:23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Keep on hoping. Don't give up hope. Be an optimist. It's the protection of your mind. In my previous talks this week, I've dealt with five of the items of defensive armor listed by Paul in Ephesians 6:13 through 17. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of salvation, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Today I'm going to deal with the sixth and last item, the sword of the Spirit. There's one thing that distinguishes the sword from the other five items that we've looked at. The sword is the first item that is not purely defensive. Without it, we have no way to drive the devil off. If we put on all the other items of equipment, we may perhaps be able to prevent the devil from actually wounding us, but we cannot drive him from our presence. The only thing that can do that in that list is the sword, which is called the Word of God. The Bible compares God's Word to a sword because God's Word pierces and penetrates. For instance, in Hebrews 4 verse 12, the writer says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The truth there is that God's word penetrates to every area of human personality. It penetrates to the marrow, the very innermost part of the physical being, and it penetrates and divides between soul and spirit, the innermost area of human personality. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. In Revelation 1.16, where John had a vision of Jesus in his glory as the Lord of the church, one of the things that he saw was a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. This is what he says. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. That sharp double-edged sword is the word of God coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Since it's indicated in scripture that Jesus himself uses the sword 
of the Word of God, we would do well to study just how Jesus used it in his earthly life. The clearest picture of this is found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, which describes the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. Let me say in advance, every time that Jesus encountered Satan personally, he used against him only one weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Listen while I read this account. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Some interesting things about that that I'd like to point out. One thing that really impresses me is that neither Jesus nor Satan ever questioned the authority of Scripture. Isn't that remarkable? Particularly because Jesus quoted each time from the book of Deuteronomy. And if there's one book that has been singled out for attack by modern theologians and critics, it's the book of Deuteronomy. But personally, I believe Jesus and Satan were wiser than the modern theologians. They both knew the authority of those words. Secondly, you could notice that the basis of every temptation against Jesus was a temptation to doubt. Every time Satan began with the word if, he called something in doubt. And then, as I've already indicated, Jesus didn't vary his method of dealing with Satan. He always used the same weapon against him, the Word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. It's significant that the devil can quote Scripture, but he misapplies it. He quoted from Psalm 91, but Jesus quoted again from Deuteronomy. The devil tried to use Scripture against the Son of God. If he did it against Jesus, he might do it against you or me. We have to know Scripture thoroughly, and we have to know how to apply Scripture if we're going to be able to handle the devil. We've got to be careful of people who misapply Scripture and try to tempt us to do the wrong thing. But my real main point is this. Jesus did not answer the devil with theology. He didn't answer him with his religious affiliation. He didn't tell him which synagogue he attended or which rabbi had taught him. He always went straight to the scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. And after the third thrust of that sharp double-edged sword, Satan backed off. He'd had enough. And you and I are given the privilege of using the same weapon. Return for a moment to Ephesians 6.17 
where Paul speaks about the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The word he uses in Greek there for word is rhema. And rhema always means primarily a spoken word. I think that's significant. The sword of the Spirit is not the Bible on the bookshelf or on the nightstand. That doesn't scare the devil. But when you take the scripture in your mouth and quote it direct, then it becomes the sword of the Spirit. Notice also the significance of that phrase, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Holy Spirit. This indicates cooperation between the believer and the Holy Spirit. We have to take the sword. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that for us. But when we take the sword in faith, then the Holy Spirit gives us the power and the wisdom to use it. In my talks this week, I've dealt with the six items of protective armor. Let me just enumerate them once again. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of salvation, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we put on and use this entire protective equipment which God has provided, we are totally protected from the head to the feet, from the crown of our head to the soles of our feet, except for one area. What's that? I told you earlier. The one area for which there's no protection is our back. And I believe this is very significant. I believe it has a twofold application. The first is, never turn your back on the devil. Because if you do, you're giving him an opportunity to wound you in an unprotected area. In other words, never give up. Never turn around and say, I've had enough. I can't stand this. I can't take any more. Because that's turning your unprotected back to the devil. And be sure he'll avail himself of the opportunity to wound you. But I think it means more than that. Because in a certain sense, we're not always able to protect our own back. And I believe the implication is this. In the time of Paul, in the legions of Rome, and in the armies of Greece which preceded those of Rome, it was always understood that foot soldiers would fight in close ranks. The Greek word for such a close rank was a phalanx. And they were trained to fight this way and never break rank. Every soldier knew the particular soldier that should be on his right and on his left. So that if he was being hard-pressed and could not protect his own back, there was another soldier there to do it for him. I believe the same is true of us as Christians. I believe we cannot go out as isolated individuals and take on the devil's kingdom. We have to come under discipline. We have to find our place in the body, which is the army of Christ. We have to know who stands on our right and who stands on our left. We have to be able to trust our fellow soldiers. And when we're under pressure, we ought to know who'll be there to protect our back when we can't protect it. In closing, let me say something which I'd rather not say, but I believe it's true. You know the real tragedy of so much of our Christian experiences that the very person who protects your back sometimes wounds you. How often we as Christians are wounded in the back by our fellow Christians. That's something that never ought to happen. Let's make up our minds. We're going to stand together, protect one another's back, not wound one another. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, please visit our website at derekprince.org 
or call us at 1-800-448-3261. It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living that God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. This week I'll continue with my theme from the previous two weeks, Spiritual Warfare. Last week I dealt with the six items of defensive armor listed by Paul in Ephesians 6:14 through 17 The girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. I pointed out that, with the exception of the sword, all these items listed are essentially for protection or self-defense, and even the sword can reach no further than the arm of the person who wields it. In other words, there is nothing in this list of defensive equipment that will enable us to deal with Satan's strongholds, as Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, where he speaks about our obligation to cast down Satan's strongholds or fortresses. So in my talks this week, I want to move from the defensive to the offensive. I want to deal with weapons of attack, weapons that will enable us to assail and cast down Satan's strongholds. It's important that we see our obligation to take the offensive, to move out and actively attack Satan's kingdom. It's a fact of history and experience that no army ever won a war on the defensive. Somewhere in the early part of this century, someone asked a well-known French general, in a war, which army wins? The general replied, the one which advances. Now that's probably an oversimplification, but at least it's true that we'll never win a war by retreating or even by merely holding our ground. And as long as Satan keeps the church on the defensive, his kingdom will never be overthrown. Therefore, we have an absolute obligation to move out from the defensive, from mere self-protection, to attack. When Jesus first unveiled his plan for the church, he envisioned it going out on the offensive and attacking Satan's strongholds. The first time the word church is used in the New Testament is in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is here speaking to Peter, and he says this, You are Peter, a stone, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. An alternative reading is, All the gates of hell shall not be too strong for it. Uh, hell is, in Greek, the word Hades. The root meaning of the word Hades is invisible, unseen. So Hades, or hell, is the unseen world of Satan's kingdom. Now Jesus pictures his church in the light of two primary activities, building and battling. These always must go together. It's no good battling if we don't build. But on the other hand, we can't build if we don't battle. So we've got to think always in terms of building the church and battling the forces of Satan. 
Now many people have interpreted these words of Jesus incorrectly. They've somehow assumed that Jesus pictured the church on the defensive, being besieged in a city by Satan's forces. And they've taken his promise to mean that Satan would not be able to batter the gate of that city down before Jesus came and caught the church away. That's really a totally defensive concept of the church in the world. But it's completely incorrect. If we really analyze what Jesus meant by his words to Peter, we find that Jesus pictures the church on the offensive, attacking the gates of Satan. And his promise is that Satan's gates will not hold out against the church, that Satan will not be able to keep the church out. It's not the church trying to keep Satan out, it's Satan failing to keep the church out. Jesus promises us that if we obey him as our commander-in-chief, we'll be able to move out, storm Satan's citadels, break through his gates, release his captives, and carry away his spoil. That's the church's assignment. It's essentially offensive, not defensive. The word gate has a great deal of meaning in Scripture. First of all, the gate is the place of counsel and rule. For instance, in Proverbs 31, verse 23, it says of the husband of the ideal wife, the faithful wife, her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Notice the city gate was the place where the ruling council of elders sat, ruled, and administered the city. So, when the scripture says that the gates of Satan will not prevail against the church, it means that Satan's counsels will not prevail against the church, that Satan's counsels will be frustrated and brought to naught. Then again, in attacking a city, the natural place to attack is the gates. They're weaker than the walls. In Isaiah 28.6, we have this phrase, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. So you see the picture. The picture is the church making an onslaught on the gates of Satan's citadel. And the promise of Jesus is that the gates of Satan will not be able to keep the church out. So we have to have an adjustment in our thinking. We have to stop thinking on the defensive and start thinking on the offensive. My experience is that most Christians have got the kind of attitude, I wonder where the devil's going to strike next. I suggest to you that the boot should be on the other foot. The devil should be wondering where the church is going to strike him next. I want to explain the scriptural basis for our doing so. It's really found mainly in one verse, Colossians 2.15, which describes what God accomplished through the death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. It says this, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now the rulers and authorities are the same spiritual forces of Satan that are referred to in Ephesians 6.12. It's Satan's spiritual kingdom. So through the cross, God disarmed those rulers and authorities. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. That Satan has been left without armor. He's been stripped of his weapons. God, through the cross, disarmed 
the rulers and authorities. Then it says, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, that's through Jesus, or through the cross. Either translation is permissible. So God, through the cross, disarmed Satan's kingdom. He made a public display of the representatives of Satan's kingdom, and He triumphed over them in the cross. I've pointed out before that a triumph is not so much winning a victory. It's the celebration of a victory that has already been won. It goes beyond victory. It's a public demonstration that complete victory has been won. Now, Jesus on the cross did not win the victory for himself. He always had the victory. He was our representative, and he won the victory on our behalf. Thus, his victory becomes our victory. We see this in 2 Corinthians 2.14, where Paul says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Notice those two phrases, always, in every place. Always and in every place. We are to represent Christ's victory. God is going to demonstrate publicly the victory that Christ has won through us. That's the victory over Satan's rulers and authorities, or principalities and powers. This victory is to be worked out through us. Let's look at the final commission of Jesus given to his disciples in Matthew 28:18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. If Jesus has all authority, that leaves none for anybody else except us. He yields it. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You notice the therefore. It's significant. Jesus said, All authority has already been given to me. You go, therefore. What does the therefore mean? I understand it to mean this. You go and exercise on my behalf the authority that I've already won. So our assignment is to administer the victory, demonstrate the triumph, and exercise the authority that Jesus has won on our behalf. You see, authority is only effective when it's exercised. If we don't exercise the authority of Jesus that he's given to us, it remains ineffective. Secondly, the world can only see Christ's victory when we demonstrate it. Christ has won the victory, but our assignment is to demonstrate the victory over Satan and his kingdom, which Jesus has already won. And this we can only do when we move from the defensive to the offensive. In my introductory talk yesterday, I pointed out that we somehow tend to form a wrong picture of Christ's purpose for his church. The first time in the Gospels that Jesus spoke of his church, he gave us the promise that all the gates of hell or of Hades shall not prevail against it or shall not be too strong for it. I pointed out that Hades is the word for Satan's unseen kingdom in the spiritual world. Traditionally, on the basis of these words of Jesus, we have pictured the church on the defensive. We've thought of the church being besieged in the city by the forces of Satan, and we've interpreted the promise of Jesus that Satan would not be able to batter down the gates until Jesus had come and caught away the church. That's completely a defensive posture. But actually, what Jesus pictured was exactly the opposite. Jesus pictured the church on the offensive, Satan on the defensive, the church attacking Satan's citadels and strongholds, 
and his promise was that the gates of Satan's kingdom would not be able to keep out the attacking church. The implication was that the church would be able to move in, storm Satan's strongholds, release his captives, and carry off his spoil. That's the purpose of Jesus. Now, in order that we may assail and cast down Satan's strongholds, God has provided us with appropriate spiritual weapons. Second Corinthians 10.4, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not carnal. They're not physical. They're not material. They're not bombs or bullets or tanks or warplanes. But he goes on to say they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Whose fortresses? Of course, Satan's fortresses. In other words, God has provided us with spiritual weapons. On the basis of much study and also personal experience, I believe that Scripture reveals four main weapons of attack, spiritual weapons of attack. They are prayer, praise, preaching, and testimony. I'll just repeat that. Prayer, praise, preaching, and testimony. Today, I'm going to deal with the weapon of prayer. Of course, I have to qualify this by saying that prayer is much more than a weapon. There are many different aspects to prayer, but in one aspect, prayer is a weapon of spiritual warfare. I believe it's the most powerful of all the weapons that God has committed to us. In Ephesians chapter 6, after Paul has listed the six items of defensive armor, he then continues in Ephesians 6.18 and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I believe at that point he moves from the defensive to the offensive. I believe it's no accident that that comes immediately after the list of defensive armor. I believe he's there mentioning the greatest of all weapons of attack, the weapon of prayer. I tend to think of prayer as an intercontinental ballistic missile. You know what that is? It's, I don't understand it fully myself, but it's a kind of missile that's launched by a rocket from one continent, and it can be directed by electronics, by radar, to a target in a completely different continent. And it can land on that target out of the air and simply smash it to pieces. You see, there's no limitation to prayer. There's no limitation of time. There's no limitation of distance. Prayer is like that intercontinental ballistic missile. With it, we can assail Satan's strongholds anywhere. His strongholds in the heavenlies included. Now let's look at an example of the prayer of attack from the book of Acts. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. This relates a situation in which the church had come under persecution by King Herod, James, one of the leaders, had been already executed by Herod. Now, Peter had been arrested and was scheduled for execution shortly. This is the situation. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. He wouldn't do it during the Passover because that would have been considered desecrating a holy period in the Jewish calendar. So Peter was kept in prison, 
but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Notice that phrase, but the church was earnestly praying. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. I want you to picture the scene. This is the maximum security jail. It's the inner prison. And Herod is so determined that no one shall rescue Peter that he actually has four squads of four soldiers each watching him night and day, four hours at a time. I think it's implied that one soldier was chained either to Peter's hands or to Peter's feet. So he was absolutely under the maximum security. In the natural, any kind of rescue was totally impossible. But it says the church was earnestly praying. I have to comment this. A crisis adjusts our priorities. I don't know how earnest the church had been in prayer, maybe for some time. Then suddenly James was snatched from them. Now they saw the danger of Peter, their natural leader, being taken. I think that was motivation for earnest prayer. They were not only praying in the daytime, but the record indicates they were praying at night. It's important to notice that there are times when merely praying in the day will not be enough. Jesus said in Luke 18 that God would avenge his own elect who cried unto him day and night. There's a kind of intensity in prayer that is sometimes needed to release God's intervention. Also, I want to remind you of a promise that Jesus had given to Peter. He gave it in John 21:18 and 19. He said this, to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I wonder whether Peter was meditating on that promise in the prison. Jesus said, when you are old, at that time Peter was not yet an old man. I suppose that somehow he must have reasoned something was going to happen to cause the word of Jesus to stand. And stand it did, but it took the prayer of the church to make it effective. Now let's see how God answered the prayer of the church. An angel came to deliver Peter. This is the description. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked through the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So that's how God answered the prayers of the church by a supernatural intervention through an angel. However, the deliverance was only the first part of the result of that prayer. The second part was a judgment by an angel on the persecuting king, Herod. We need to see this. The closing verses of Acts 12 say this, After Herod had had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. 
On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. In other words, they flattered Herod by calling him a god. Now notice the result. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now let's look how prayer worked in that situation as a weapon of attack. I would express it this way. Prayer broke through in the heavenlies and released the intervention of angels. We can compare the time in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel prayed and an angel came from heaven with the answer. Now let's look at the final comment of Scripture in Acts 12.24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. This pictures the irresistible progress of God's word, and especially of the promise that Jesus had given to Peter that he was to be an old man before he died. But you see, it took prayer to enforce the promises of God's word. This is what I want you to understand. The promises of God's word are not a substitute for our prayer. They provoke our prayer. And it takes our prayer to make the promises of God's word effective in our experience. It takes our prayer also to release the intervention of angels on our behalf. The scripture says that angels are ministering spirits sent forth for our benefit. But they don't come as a rule until we pray through and by our prayer we release that intervention of angels, which is God's answer. So bear in mind that prayer breaks through Satan's kingdom in the heavenlies and releases divine angelic intervention. In my talk yesterday, I spoke about the weapon of prayer. I called it the Holy Spirit's intercontinental ballistic missile, the long-range weapon that can strike Satan's strongholds and demolish them anywhere in the universe. I gave examples from the book of Acts of how fervent united prayer by the church in Jerusalem had broken through the heavenlies and released the supernatural intervention of angels to perform two dramatic miracles. First, the release of Peter from the maximum security prison. Second, the judgment of a deadly and disgusting sickness upon the persecuting King Herod, which caused his death. Today I'm going to deal with the next great weapon of attack that follows logically after prayer, and that is praise. Perhaps, in a sense, you could consider praise one type of prayer. In the Bible, praise is frequently related to God's awesomeness or fearfulness. Praise calls forth God's supernatural intervention, and it's also the appropriate response to that intervention. Here's an example from the book of Exodus, the song of Moses, the song that Moses and Israel sang after their deliverance from Egypt and after Pharaoh's army had been destroyed by the waters of the Red Sea. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness? awesome in praises, working wonders. Note the phrase awesome in praises. Praise reveals and calls forth God's awesomeness, his fearfulness, especially against the enemies of God's people. And then in Psalm 22, verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise him. 
all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Notice that praise is the appropriate response by God's people to his awesomeness, to his fearful acts of war and vengeance on their behalf. This is more fully developed in Psalm 8, verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. We see here that God has provided strength for his people against their enemies. Two words are used for the enemies. First of all, adversaries in the plural. I believe that means Satan's kingdom generally, the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities that are spoken of in Ephesians 6.12. But then the psalmist also speaks about the enemy, singular. I believe that's Satan himself. The enemy, singular, Satan the adversaries, the representatives of Satan's kingdom generally. God has provided his people strength to deal with this entire kingdom. The nature of the strength that God has provided is more fully revealed in the New Testament, in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. This records an incident in the ministry of Jesus when he was in the temple performing miracles and the little children were running to and fro crying, Hosanna! and the religious leaders asked Jesus to silence the children. Here we have the reply of Jesus. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes Thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Jesus answered them by quoting that verse in Psalm 8, 2. But he changed the quotation just a little. He gave us, as it were, his own comment. The psalmist said, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, Thou hast established strength. Jesus said, Thou hast prepared praise. So that reveals what the strength of God's people is. It's praise. Praise is our great source of strength. Notice certain other things about this revelation. First of all, in each case it says, out of the mouth. The mouth is the primary channel for releasing spiritual forces, for releasing our spiritual weapons against Satan's kingdom. Secondly, it speaks of infants and babes. This, I believe, means those who have no natural strength of their own, they have to rely on God's strength. In Matthew 11:25, Jesus spoke like this about his own disciples. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. He was talking about his own disciples. So babes are not necessarily those who are just newly born in the natural, but they are those who have no natural strength of their own, who have to depend totally on God's strength. The result of the use of praise as a weapon is to silence Satan. This lines up with what we read in Revelation 12.10, a vision that's yet to be fulfilled but tells us a great deal about Satan's activity at this time. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. This tells us 
what Satan's primary activity is, his main weapon against us. It's accusation. He's accusing us continually before God day and night. It occurs to me that if Satan is busy day and night, we cannot afford to be busy only in the daytime. We've got to meet him day and night. Why does Satan accuse us? What's his purpose? The answer is, he wants to make us guilty. Because that's his main weapon against us, is guilt. He achieves it by accusation. Well, then you might say, well, why doesn't God silence Satan? The answer is simple. Because God has given us the means to silence Satan, and he's not going to do it for us. What is that means? It's praise out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Praise that ascends through the heavenlies, reaches the throne of God, and silences Satan's accusation against us. Isn't that good news? That there's a way we can silence Satan. Now I'm going to look at another passage in Revelation. Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14. This too is prophetic. And I'm not going to attempt to explain how it will be worked out in history, but I want to point out an important principle. John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs. For they are the spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. The point I want to make is that unclean spirits, Satan's forces, also operate through mouths. Praise that silences Satan comes out of the mouths of God's people. But satanic spiritual forces are released through the mouths of those who are on Satan's side. Out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet came unclean spirits. In a certain sense, this indicates that the side which uses its mouth most effectively will win this spiritual war. If we do not learn to use our mouths, we cannot win the war. Also, the unclean spirits are compared to frogs. This is fascinating. I'd like to spend time on it, but time doesn't permit. But it's interesting that frogs only make a noise at night, and their noise is a ceaseless, repetitive croaking, which goes on all through the hours of darkness. I believe that's a very vivid picture of something we are familiar with in contemporary civilization, propaganda. Propaganda is often a satanic instrument to promote false ideologies, false political purposes, uh, false and evil rulers. And one of the great ways that we have to deal with these forces is by praise that comes out of the mouth of God's people. Now I want to give you in closing another example of the power of praise from the book of Psalms. Psalm 149, verses 6 through 9. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters and their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Here it speaks of something that all God's saints can do through praise but it's praise accompanied with a two-edged sword. The two-edged sword is God's word. In other words, God's word and praise must go together. Combined with God's word, praise becomes an instrument of judgment on kings and nations. The kings and nobles they're referred to, I believe, are Satan's angelic princes and kings of the unseen world. To us, as God's believing people, is committed authority to administer on them the sentence written. In other words, we administer on them God's revealed judgments. 
And this privilege is granted to all God's saints. Let me just point out two statements in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to Christians, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then do you not know that we will judge angels? We have the authority committed to us through God's word and through the weapon of praise to administer God's judgment on angels and on rulers and on kings and peoples and nations. Think of the tremendous power and authority that implies. In my previous talks this week, I've dealt with two main weapons of attack, the weapon of prayer and the weapon of praise. To be fully effective, we've seen that each of these weapons needs to be combined with God's Word. Today I'm going to deal with another weapon of attack that is related even more directly and specifically to God's Word, the weapon of preaching. Let me add that I have in mind solely and exclusively the preaching of God's Word. What I have to say today in no way applies to the preaching of other things, such as human philosophies, or political ideologies, or even elaborate theology, but only to the preaching of God's Word. A good point to begin this study of the power of the preaching of God's Word is found in the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-4. through 4. This is what Paul says. It's a very solemn charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I want to point out certain important things. First of all, the solemnity of the charge. It's given in the presence of God and Christ Jesus in the light of the fact that Christ will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom. It's one of the most solemn charges ever given to a servant of God. The charge is, preach the word. It implies the accountability of the preacher for what he preaches. The reference to the fact that Jesus will judge the living and the dead indicates that preachers will answer to the Lord for the messages they preach. As a warning, not to accommodate the desires of self-pleasing rebels who don't want to hear the truth and will look for preachers that will preach the kind of thing they want to hear. The warning is, do not accommodate these people. There's a warning that not all will receive the truth. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, in spite of opposition and criticism, the charge is, preach the Word, the Word of God. Scripture has much to say about the effectiveness of God's Word. Isaiah 55:11, God says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Again, in Jeremiah 23:29, God says, 
Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? And then in Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So there's tremendous power in the preached word of God. Its results are guaranteed. It will not return empty. It will accomplish God's pleasure. It's a hammer that will break in pieces every rock that opposes the purposes of God. It's like a sharp sword that pierces to the innermost recesses of the human uh, personality and lays bare the secrets of men's hearts and minds. I want to give an example of this power of the preached word of God from the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. I'm going to read Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There are three adjectives that describe this preaching of Paul. It was intense, it was continuous, it was extensive. Daily, for two years, he taught the word of God. And it was extensive in the sense that his teaching reached out to the whole of the large province of Asia. I think we often fail to realize that Paul spent over two years continuously in the city of Ephesus every day preaching the word of God. Now let's look at the results. To me the results are rather like throwing a stone into a pond and then watching the ripples go out from the place where the stone fell, extending wider and wider in every direction till they reach the margin of the pond. The first result was supernatural attestation. The scripture says that God will confirm his word. He doesn't confirm human theories or philosophies or even denominational tags, but he will confirm his word. So he did for Paul. This is what it says in Acts 19 verses 11 through 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. I love that word, extraordinary miracles. You know what it implies? That some miracles were ordinary. But the ones that happened here in Ephesus were extraordinary. I always ask myself this question. In how many of our churches today do we have even ordinary miracles, let alone extraordinary miracles? Then it describes these extraordinary miracles. Handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick. Their illnesses were cured. The evil spirits left them. I just want to testify from personal experience. I've seen miracles like that happen in my time. I've been a witness of them. This is not out of date. The key factor is preaching the word of God. I've said that the first result of Paul's preaching in Ephesus was supernatural attestation to his message by miracles. The second result is very interesting. Evil spirits were driven out into the open. Reading on in Acts 19 verses 13 through 16. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say... In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, 
Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house, naked and bleeding. See, one of the important things in the ministry is to bring Satan's secret agents out into the open. And demons or evil spirits are Satan's secret agents. It represents a great stage of progress in the ministry of God's Word when these evil spirits that work in secret, undercover, are brought right out into the open. And this happened here. I'm always impressed by what the evil spirit said. He said, Jesus, I acknowledge. Paul, I know about. To me, that's a kind of backhanded compliment. When the representatives of Satan have to say about a preacher, I know about him, he's achieving something. All right, what was the third result of Paul's preaching? Occult domination over an entire city was broken. Reading on in Acts 19, verses 17 through 19. When this, that's the incident with the man with the evil spirits, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. You see, a lot of people were believers, but they'd been dabbling in the occult, a situation that's similar in the church today. They had one foot in God's kingdom, one foot in Satan's camp. But when they saw this fearful demonstration of the reality of Satan's power, they decided to commit themselves totally to God and turn their back on Satan. As evidence of this, they brought the books or the scrolls which contained the occult knowledge, the, the magic, the sorcery, and so on. And all these books were publicly burned somewhere in the city of Ephesus. It says the value of the books was 50,000 drachmas. A drachma at that time was about a day's wages for a working man. If you compute a day's wages in the United States at about $30, more or less, give or take, 50,000 drachmas corresponds to $1,500,000. That's a large sum of money. See what an impact that must have made on the entire city. And I believe the same thing needs to happen in almost every major city of the United States today. Now, let's look at the Scripture's explanation of all this. Acts 19.20 In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What was the power behind all this? was the word of the Lord, Paul's ministry of the word for over two years, produced dramatic, powerful results. Satan's kingdom in that area was rocked to its foundations. His fortresses were overthrown. Finally, let's look at an account of Paul's own ministry as he gives it himself in Acts 20, verse 20 and following. He says to the people there about his ministry in Ephesus, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And then again he says, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I sum them up in two phrases. No reservations, no compromise. That's the kind of preaching of the word of God that accomplishes those effects. We need it today. In my previous talks this week, I've dealt with three main weapons of attack, prayer, praise, and preaching. Today I'm going to deal with what I consider to be the fourth main weapon of attack, 
testimony. We need to begin by distinguishing between testimony and preaching. The other word for testimony is witnessing or being a witness. Preaching is presenting the truths of God's word directly. But testimony is speaking from personal experience. But it's speaking about experiences that relate to the word of God and that confirm the truth of God's word. For instance, if we're preaching a message on healing, we preach the principles on which God heals. We offer his promises of healing. But if we're testifying about healing, we speak about some experience in which we experience God healing us. So testimony and preaching are both related to the word of God, but they approach it from different angles. Now, testimony was, I believe, basic to the strategy of Jesus for reaching the whole world with the gospel. He unveiled this strategy in his closing words on earth. As he stood on the Mount of Olives with his disciples about to leave them, he said this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We notice, first of all, that to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we need supernatural power. Our testimony is supernatural. It needs to be backed home and enforced by supernatural power, the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did not permit his disciples to go out and to begin testifying until they'd been endued with that power on the day of Pentecost. Secondly, Jesus did not say, you will witness, which is what a lot of religious people say today. He said, you will be witnesses. In other words, it's not just the words we speak or the tracts that we hand out or something like that, but it's our total life. Our total life is to be a witness to Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Then Jesus envisaged an ever-extending circle. He said, start where you are in Jerusalem, go and tell people and let them believe and let them be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let them go and tell other people in turn let them in turn believe, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and go and tell others. And he said it will start in Jerusalem, it will move out to Judea, then to Samaria, and it will not cease until it reaches the uttermost part of the earth. And those were the last words of Jesus spoken on earth. His mind and his heart were in the uttermost part of the earth. He would never be satisfied till that had been reached. And his way for reaching it, his basic strategy was all God's people becoming witnesses, witnessing to and winning others, and those in turn witnessing and winning until, like the expanding ripples from a stone cast into a pond, they would reach the uttermost part of the earth. Now, we have to say, looking back on history, that when God's people applied this strategy, it works. Within 300 years, it had conquered the Roman Empire. And I believe the great basic spiritual force that overthrew that pagan Roman Empire was the testimony of thousands and thousands of Christian believers from different backgrounds, different races, different social levels, different religious persuasions, but they were all saying, Jesus changed my life. And the impact of this ultimately broke down that stern, strong, cruel empire of Rome. I believe the Bible indicates that the same weapon will ultimately cast down even Satan's kingdom in the heavenlies. 
We see this, I believe, in prophetic preview in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 11. I believe these verses describe a great conflict which will uh, span both heaven and earth at the close of this age, a conflict between angels and men. This is what John says. There was war in heaven. I believe that's still in the future. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The accuser of the brothers is Satan. This describes how he's been hurled down from his kingdom in the heavens. Then it describes how the believers overcame Satan. And notice it's a direct person-to-person -person conflict. They, the believers, overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What was their main weapon? I believe it's in that word, testimony. It was their testimony that ultimately shook down the kingdom of Satan, or rather, since this is a vision yet unfulfilled, that will ultimately shake down the whole kingdom of Satan. I believe their testimony centered in two things, the word of God, the blood of Jesus. Their testimony released the power that's in the word and the blood. I believe that we can apply this in a simple, practical way to ourselves. We can put it like this. We overcome Satan when we testify personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does for us. Let me repeat that. We overcome Satan when we testify personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does for us. You see the importance of bearing personal testimony to the Word and to the blood. Now, there are various ways that we can do it. One appointed way is the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Sometimes we don't see it in, in this light, but this is a continuing testimony of our faith in the Word and the blood. Speaking about the Lord's Supper, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We know the cup represents the blood of the Lord. So in taking the Lord's Supper, we are continually testifying, proclaiming, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order to testify effectively to what the Word of God says about the blood of Jesus, there is one simple and obvious requirement. We have to be familiar with what the Word of God actually tells us about the blood of Jesus. So I'm going to point out to you now five extremely important provisions revealed in God's Word that come to us through the blood of Jesus. First of all, in Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That tells us two things that are provided for us through the blood of Jesus. First of all, redemption, we are redeemed. Secondly, forgiveness, we are forgiven. And then in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we read, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Notice, the blood cleanses us. 
continually. Through the blood, we have available to us continuing spiritual cleansing. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That tells us that we are justified. That means made righteous. The best description I ever heard of justified is like this. Justified just as if I had never sinned because I have been made righteous with a righteousness that knows no sin, the righteousness of Christ. So through the blood of Jesus we have been justified. And then in Hebrews 13:12 we read, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. There it tells us that we can be sanctified through the blood of Jesus. To sanctify means to make holy or to set apart to God. So there are five great provisions of the blood of Jesus revealed by the word of God. First of all, we are redeemed. Second, we are forgiven. Third, we are cleansed. Fourth, we are justified, made righteous. Fifth, we are sanctified, made holy. Now, those provisions only become fully effective in our lives when we testify to them personally. We have to be bold enough to state our conviction. We have to say it like this. Through the blood of Jesus, I am redeemed out of the hand of Satan. Through the blood of Jesus, all my sins are forgiven. The blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. Through the blood of Jesus, I am justified, made righteous, just as if I had never sinned. And through the blood of Jesus, I am sanctified, made holy, set apart to God. I am no longer in Satan's territory. Just meditate on those five provisions of the blood of Jesus. Redemption, forgiveness, cleansing, justification, sanctification. And then grasp the fact that they become effectually yours when you testify to them personally. And by testifying to them personally, we overcome Satan. By the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, please visit our website at derekprince.org or call us at 1-800-448-3261.